My kids go through seasons of being interested in helping me with that kind of stuff. And then seasons of not. And sometimes it depends on the day. I want my kids to really like gardening and grow up with good memories of it. Because a lot of people that I know that don't want that lifestyle, they grew up in a garden or a farm and they remembered it just being really a lot of hard work Mm -hmm. and being out in the garden and it was so hot. And they just remember being miserable in the garden when they were a little kid. So I try to make it pleasant for them. Welcome to Thrive in the Future podcast, positive solutions to help you thrive, homestead, garden, and designing your intentional life. Okay, welcome back to Thrive in the Future. This week, I have Roxanne Ahern with me, and we're talking about her book, Holistic Homesteading, A Guide to Sustainable and Regenerative Lifestyle. So Roxanne, I really like the book. I love the full color pictures, especially on the cover just leaps right out at you. And I like the balance that you have with a little bit of permaculture, but not beating you over the head with permaculture and then gardening, wildcrafting, fermenting and everything. And the foraging I really like. So it's unique and it's just the right balance of everything. Wow. That's really nice to hear. Thank you. It only came out a few months ago. So I honestly appreciate any bit of feedback and getting back, especially when it's positive feedback. That's always very nice. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I wanted to write something for people that wanted to be more involved in their food production, but maybe didn't necessarily have access to land. So Mm -hmm. gardening is something you can do if you have access to land. But what a lot of people don't think about is just how involved they could be with the production of their food in other ways, because they can buy from farmers or forage, and then they can produce things. And then you're reducing the packaging that you're using and the chemicals that you're exposed to and all these other things. So And I found, I don't know what it was like for you, but when I first started growing food, I didn't really know how to preserve it. And so a lot of harvests, you know, you get overwhelmed and you're growing all these things and you're trying to figure out what to do with them. And we would have things go to waste or just end up getting fed to the animals because I couldn't get to it fast enough. I didn't have any real skills in preserving. So I thought, well, if people are homestead dreaming, they can be practicing these skills while they're living in an apartment. And then once you do start producing stuff, you don't let your stuff go to waste because it's sad. You work really hard to produce those things. You don't want to lose them. We're in the weeks of want right now where normally folks stored food would have run out and you're waiting for the first crop to come in. So you start going around and foraging. So one of the things I really liked about your book was the sections on foraging. So what kind of stuff do you forage for? You live down in the Southeast US, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of stuff do you forage for down there? And, and then what do you do with it? Gosh, so the very earliest stuff is usually greens like sorrel mm-hmm. or chickweed or even things like that we'll eat. Um, the girls will go out and get the henbit or the dead nettle. They love to get all the flowers from that. They use them as little sprinkles, you know, sure. on their... We also eat the dead nettle and the henbit just chopped up in salads. Let's see what else. I feel like that's the earliest stuff. And then the morels kick off around March, but there's not usually a ton of morels, but they're fun, they're fun to go look for. They're very elusive. Some years we don't get a harvest of them, but sometimes we, we hit a big jackpot of them, which is nice. And then other wild mushrooms as well. There's wow. tons down here in the in the woods there's oyster mushrooms there's chicken of the woods there's lion's mane 
there's so many mushrooms. So when we started getting into foraging, my kids, my oldest kids were really little and it was sort of part of school and I was learning right along with them. And I was really intimidated by it at first. I thought, oh, they're going to eat some plant. It's going to kill them. And, and I was very timid at first. And what I learned is really, I don't know if you've experienced this too, but seems like there's more edible and medicinal plants than ones that are actually poisonous. So for some reason, I had this fear of eating anything that was wild, but most of it's just fine. Most of it's fine. I mean, I don't recommend just going out and eating anything without educating yourself on it at all. Always know what you're eating. But I guess what I'm trying to say is I was just surprised by the abundance that we're surrounded by all the time. And then we toil and we strive to create things, but there's actually a lot around us and nature can be, I mean, there's lean times in nature, but nature can be so generous. And so just to get people sort of tuned into that. And then once you start seeing that, well, okay, all these wild plants are edible and you start wondering why aren't they used more as landscape plants? Why aren't we cultivating these? Why are we spraying the dead nettle nettle and the henbit that come up in our yard and the clover, but Mm -hmm. then we go buy greens from the store that have the same nutrient profile wrapped in plastic, you know, called something else, kale or romaine. We'd get a lot of pushback from people when I would try to share my wild food with them too, because they would get weirded out by it. They never seen it before sharing with a relative. Hey, did you know you could eat those daylilies? She's like, why would I do that? That's (laughs) a terrible idea. But they're actually yummy. So yeah, we actually cultivate a lot of those in our perennial garden. We have a ton of the daylilies because those are easy to eat. And what do you eat down there? What do you guys forage for? So I have sorrel growing in my Mm -hmm. perennial garden. Like you said, henbit, we go around and, and collect that. I haven't developed too much of a taste for that yet, but going around and getting some of that. Purslane. Oh yes, purslane. Yeah, dandelions. Oh, I was just going to say with dandelions is a real kind of a trigger for me because they are so useful, but they're so vilified, like to the point where there's a picture of them on Roundup, on the weed (laughs) killer, you know. Again, we're pulling the dandelions out of our yard that are so healthy and nutritious and medicinal and have so many different ways to use them. And then what we want, because we want grass and then we're going and buying our greens. So anyways, yeah, dandelions are a great one. Stinging nettle, I go over to the lake and to the creeks that feed the lake. And in the creek bottoms, they have stinging nettle. So one of my friends, all of his greens for the year are mostly kale and stinging nettle. He collects so much nettle in the spring, and then he either steams them or whatever, makes them into balls, and then freezes them, and then eats them all year long. Smart. Has to get them before they get too far along. So, you know, when they're nice and young and and tender and stuff. I did a lot of that in the last two years, as I was saying with Jason. So I grew up in Iowa. We had morels because we actually had April showers, bring May flowers. But down here in Kansas, we get no rain in April. And then we get thunderstorms in late May and June and then drought in between. So there's usually not any morels unless we get a real wet fall or something. Yeah, I wish morels were easier to find and easier to cultivate. They seem to be one of those mystery ones Mm -hmm. that it's difficult. And, you know, you can't, oftentimes with other mushrooms, I found you can find a spot and go back and, you know, you can sort of predict, but morels are (laughs) the most unpredictable to me. I have found them in the same place more than once, but it's definitely, they're just different. They, um, they're more unpredictable or maybe, or I just don't know as much about them and I need to like learn more about how to predict them. (laughs) Right. They seem elusive. 
And we have a lot of mint. Um, I have a strain of mint called candy cane mint that is so strong and tastes like candy cane that it's really, really good in tea. And th- I've never heard of that. I would love that because peppermint is my favorite mint. That's mm-hmm. I, um, I much prefer that to spearmint. So is it more of a peppermint flavor, I'd imagine, then, right? Yeah, it's really, really strong, really strong peppermint smell. You would almost think that it has sugar in it just because it's so much like peppermint candy. That sounds really good. I'm going to have to look at getting some of that. Uh-huh. And see, mint gets a bad rap. You're using mint. It really, it doesn't get out of hand. I mean, you could plant it in your woodland. I guess I wouldn't put it in my garden where I'm keeping it really weeded nicely and stuff. But I, I mean... I've never had mint get away from me. I put it out by trees and things like that. I'll put like lemon balm or mint or things like that. Just I'll just plant it out in near the wood line. Right. And it's never gotten, so I kind of wish it would get away from me. Like I want more mint. (laughs) 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 Maybe, maybe it will. Maybe now we've moved to a separate section of our property. So I'm just thinking, well, gosh, maybe if the girls aren't over there harvesting the mint, they'll now it's going to get crazy. We'll see. Yeah, I went to a seed swap this weekend and got some Jerusalem artichokes from a Mennonite booth, and they're the biggest Jerusalem artichokes I've ever seen. So I'm I'm really excited to get those planted too. Wow, that's really cool. Were they so with Jerusalem artichokes? I've only ever gotten um, you know the ones that kind of just grow around here. They grow like on the roadsides and stuff. Sure. And are there different kinds? Like we just have the ones that look like the almost like a small sunflower right. on the top. And the tubers have all been pretty similar. Yeah. Does it seem like a different kind or is it just like yeah. a really good sized tuber? Yeah. Cause all the Jerusalem artichokes I've had in the past have been really small and lobular really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're, they're difficult to grate off or cook or whatever. And these ones right. that I got at the seed swap were more circular and much bigger. So I'm interested to see what they end up turning out like. Yeah, I would like to hear about that too, because I I feel like that too, it's more, it's like dealing with another root vegetable. It's not like a potato, it's like a ginger or something, you know, so that's like not as fun to deal with. Yeah, all the ones that I've had have been really small and just all lobular like ginger, right? And it's hard to get trimmed enough. But yeah, that's some of the things that I have going on as well. So yeah, I think if people were taught about plants that were edible, even plants that could be used as landscaping plants. And and then another thing that I struggle with too, is like, why don't we have more of these edible plants then um, woven into the fabric of our sort of our society? You know, why aren't, why aren't there these plants? Why don't, why aren't they everywhere? Why do we have all these unedible plants everywhere? <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, people always go to, well, if you had edible plants, then there would just be rotting fruit there would just be rotting fruit. And that's like what people always say, like we're going to plant some trees and there's going to be rotting fruit on the sidewalk and it's people's worst nightmare. And I think we couldn't, we plan ahead, like plan our way out of that. Like if people come every year to maintain these other trees and put like mulch volcanoes around them and spray weed killer and do all this upkeep, like couldn't somebody just come and harvest some fruit too? Sure. (laughs) I mean, it takes advanced planning, but yeah, I just, it's silly to me that we spend so much resources and time on so many like unuseful plants. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think they're pretty, but you know, I don't know. Yeah. Especially like we have Bradford pear around here that apparently if they sprout, they'll come up and then they'll 
they'll have shoots and then those actually fertilize something else and end up with a thorny calorie pear. So now our whole pasture is full of this thorny pear that doesn't bear any fruit. <laughs> so Oh no. Well that kind of, that's probably not very fun. Yeah, people don't like Bradford pear here at all so much so that the city will pay you oh, wow. to get rid of them. They'll like and they'll give you trees. Like if you I I haven't actually done it, but I've heard you have to bring some kind of proof and then they'll give you a different tree. Um oh. one that is they consider it to be more native. I have a hard time with the native and invasive invasive, like looking at things like that that way, because some things are invasive, but then sometimes our, our ecosystems are changing too. So sure. they're supporting different plants. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, people strongly dislike the Bradford pear. We've we always collect ours and like make stuff out of them, but I mean, it's a lot of work. And if I didn't have a bunch of children who'd like to play in the kitchen, we probably wouldn't mess with it too much because they're so tiny, but they think it's fun to get in there and peel them. And I don't know how much longer, how many more years they'll think it's fun. <laughs> <But> <laughs> whenever they get to make things that are sweet, they think that's fun. So that's, you great. know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another thing I really like about your book is the focus on growing what's adapted to your local area because so many people buy things from a seed company that's on the other side of the country and then whenever i do that it doesn't grow on my land <laughs> it just says yep you're not from kansas and then it just it'll come up and die off i like to order from seed companies that are a little closer or um tr i've been trying to do some land races and save my own seeds and try and adapt them Yes. No, I agree. I think a lot of people get discouraged um, about gardening because they try to grow plants that aren't super suited to their animal or to their climate. So it's like sure. one thing that people always go for is tomatoes. That's like the first thing people try to grow. And it's fine. It's not really hard. It's not super hard, but um, it is challenging in some places to, to grow them because they are prone to fungal diseases and stuff mm -hmm. where it's really moist or um, you might need to irrigate every day if you live in somewhere like California where it's really droughty in the summer. So um, they're not without work. And, and so somebody who's not used to gardening and taking care of things, it might feel hard or they might. So anyways, I do encourage people. I wrote about this in my book, but it's like, find out what the regional foods are. Like, what is, what is your area known for? What did people eat traditionally? What did the old ladies bring to potlucks in the fifties? What were people eating? You know, and here it's okra and sweet potatoes and black eyed peas. Um, right. That all grows so well here. I mean, you can throw the seeds in the ground and not really think about it that much. Maybe irrigate a couple of times if it's a really dry summer. Um, but like they don't take a lot of work, whereas a lot of the other stuff takes a lot more work in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, if people would just be encouraged to grow what would do well in their area, I think that, and then, like you said before, there's certain varieties, like there's certain tomatoes that might be really suited for your specific area. So to find a seed company that's close, I love Baker Creek. I've always had a great experience with them. But like the caveat of that is that they're only a few hours away from me. They're pretty local. So the varieties that they're pushing have, they've tested most of them on their farm and they're sure. having luck with them. So I've had really great luck. So I think that's such a good piece of advice you just had for, for people to find a seed company that's as close as possible, you know, also reputable, make sure they're good, but um, the closer you can find them to you, the better the seeds are going to work in your area. I would agree. Yeah, definitely. How, how, 
how is it coming, saving your own varieties? I've been experimenting with that too. And like, it's hard to tell honestly with some things if they're getting better mm. or if it's just, you know, like if it's improving or if it's staying the same, I haven't been doing it enough years. I don't think to right. really, you know, what do you, what's your experience been? So I was doing really well with saving mortgage lifter tomatoes. Mm -hmm. I love and, that kind. Yeah. And <laughs> then I got to about year three and then had really bad blight and fungus. Really? I was doing really well. And it's possible that I might've brought in some blight with compost or wood chips or something like that. But all of a sudden I got to year three and then they were just, they were just blight central. So, so I had to change over to were something you, else. Were you growing them in the same spot or do you move them around? I moved them around a little bit, but you know, some of them were still in the same spot. I find with um, nightshades, and I can't always do it because sometimes I don't have enough beds, but with nightshades, I try to move them around and give them a break in between because that is something that I've had before is um, blight. And then it's like your tomatoes get blight and your potatoes get blight. And right. it's, it's, you know, and so I had to learn that one the hard way. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> what's your favorite thing to grow this year or what's your cornerstone crop? I think the crops that I like to grow the most are the ones that I'm going to get the most calories out of and the things that are going to store the most. And so I really like to do potatoes, sweet potatoes, and long storing like winter squashes. Those mm -hmm. are probably my favorites to grow because they last so long. We have this one variety that will no joke. I mean, we'll harvest them in October and we'll still have them in March. They last so long. So yeah, I have a handful of squash varieties I love now that I always grow. And then sweet potatoes, okra, regular potatoes. Um, and then of course, tomatoes, just because I tomatoes are good. Um, but then we've been focusing on perennials and we just moved into a, like, we're still on the same property, but we had been building a house for a really long time and we finally finished it in November. I mean, it'd been like an eight year project. So we finally moved in, but now I have to redo the garden and figure out how to landscape everything. And I'm a little overwhelmed, to be honest. I don't know what to do first. And I'm trying to figure <laughs> out, you know, and my husband, <laughs> he's been so supportive of me and all of my permaculture tendencies and stuff. And he, he wants things to be neat and orderly and that, you know, and I get that. And so he's just like, okay, you can't you can't make the front of the house look crazy. Like you have to do something that's just normal thing. And I said, so can I not do edibles? He's like, yeah, no, you can do edibles. It just has to look tidy, like all the time. And I thought, oh, that sounds hard. I'm like a bit of a messy, free-spirited gardener because I'm taking care of my kids. And I feel like that's my focus. So my gardening is like my hobby. It doesn't have to look perfect. It's like my outlet, my creative outlet. If it had to be perfect or whatever, I it would bum me out. And mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so I've been trying to, figure out how to make something really beautiful for the front yard that the husband is going to like, but that's also really productive and fruitful, but he wants it to look nice. I, I feel like I can make a really good edible, almost all edible landscape look great. Like about three seasons, you know, he wants something that's going to have some elements that's going to look in the four season too. So we might have to bring in just some placeholders. Like I'm so bad with my non edible plants. I can tell you what <laughs> I get the stuff at the garden center and I don't, like, I don't know what that is, all these box hedges and whatnot, but we're going to have to do it together. So right now I think I'm in that process of just 
figuring out what's the best way to do everything and where should I start. So I think I'm going to focus on getting all my perennials in this year or not all of them, but getting a bunch of them in. Cause you know how that is. You always wish you had done it before. Sure. So I'm going to start and I, I want to do an asparagus patch over here. And I'm just about to start doing seeds for that. And I was just going through my seeds over the weekend and I have like a big pile of stuff. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm going to keep it really simple and not seed a lot of stuff in the house this year. But yeah, that's, I'm probably gonna anyway, <laughs> you get your seed, you get your seeds out and you get so excited about all the things. Oh, you can yeah. Grow. Yeah. What's your favorite thing to grow? The last two years I've been focusing on this thing called milpa gardening, where it's about 40 types of seeds that are all mixed together. It has popcorn and buckwheat and squash and okra and everything else. And a lot of cow peas. So different things will come up in the different seasons and then you end up with cow peas and pinto beans at the end. I did a couple beds. I got it from a cover crop place over in Nebraska. I really liked it. If you planted it early, then some of the things like buckwheat would take over first. But if you planted it later, then the squash would take over. And then, like I said, I was getting okra and cow peas and beans and things like that later in the season. And then they were dry beans. So I was able to harvest a bunch of those. So I like that. I'm going to do that in a couple of beds this year as well. That sounds really cool. I've heard of people growing that and I haven't tried it yet. I haven't tried that particular one. I think it sounds neat though. I'm interested. Yeah. It really also helped for squash because I have a lot of trouble with squash bugs. And if there's a cover crop over everything and the squash is growing in the middle of something else, you know, either greens or buckwheat or something, then it's less likely to get inundated by squash bugs. We have uh, squash bugs are so bad here too. And a lot of people um, in my gardening groups I love gardening Facebook groups. It's like the only reason I go on Facebook is because those people know their stuff and they've been gardening in your area for 50 years, some of them. I mean, they're just such a wealth of knowledge. So a lot of them do use um, like miracle Grow and stuff, but <laughs> you know what I mean? The old time gardeners are like, they're, a lot of them are not like worried about the pollinators and whatnot. You know what I mean? It's like, it's funny, all the young, all the newer gardeners coming in and hearing these sort of environmental concerns play out between like the old timer gardeners and the newbie gardeners. So that's right. been interesting. But anyways, I love gardening groups and I learn a lot from them, but a lot of people in the gardening groups say they won't even grow squash here because of the squash bugs. And I found I can really only, um, I grow the cucurbita muscata, varieties you know how i pretty much can only grow those wow. because they like something about their vine is much stronger mm -hmm. than the other squashes and so they do well here and the squash bugs attack them but like they don't bring them down and if i bury the vine like from a healthy part of the plant and then i throw some mulch or compost over that part right from and then it like it will root out and then the rest of the plant will survive but most of my, I can hardly ever even grow bush squash. I have to do it in succession. If I want to grow zucchini or yellow squash or patty pans, it's like I'll plant them, do the first harvest, um, and I plant a seed. As soon as the first seed sprouts, I plant a seed like behind it, right next to it. And then um, I rip the plant out after the first big flush. And then the other one comes up behind it. And I do that. I, I can usually get three in during the season because the squash bugs come and they it's almost dead anyway by the time I pull it out like they get that they just go after it 
And um, anyway, so wow. that's helped them, but they still, I mean, they're relentless, Sure, you know, so I have to get out there and like check for them every day. And when I don't, they, they grow so fast. Their life cycle is so fast. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to have to try that. I haven't tried the secession part. It seems like they, they don't come up until later in the season. And then I'm racing towards the fall, but if I plant mm-hmm. them later, there seems to be less squash bugs. So because it gets really hot. Someone has to try that. Somebody mentioned. No, somebody else uh, told me that too, that they don't plant their squash until really late um, for that reason and that they had better success. So I haven't tried that yet, but I might try it this year too, because I just don't know if that'll have time to pull off the succession thing this year. I'll be doing so many other things. Mm-hmm. That's how I've, I got, I learned that trick from a gentleman who has like a CSA and he grows them in a high tunnel. And he was telling me about growing them like that. And I thought, really? But it, I mean, it worked. And it was really the only way I could get decent harvests off of it, you know, unless I was out there every single day um, checking my uh, zucchini plants and like pulling the little eggs off of them and stuff. Yeah, I don't do that at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pain, you yeah. know? My kids go through seasons of being interested in helping me with that kind of stuff and then seasons of not. And sometimes it depends on the day. I want my kids to really like gardening and grow up with good memories of it. Cause a lot of kid, people that I know that don't want that lifestyle, they grew up in a garden or a farm and they remembered it just being really a lot of hard work mm-hmm. and being out in the garden and it was so hot and they just remember being miserable in the garden when they were a little kid. So I try to make it pleasant for them. Very good. Well, thank you for being on. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Thrive in the Future podcast. And check out Roxanne Ahern's book, Holistic Homesteading, A Guide to Sustainable and Regenerative Lifestyle on Amazon. And it's not too late to join our contest for February, where I'm giving away a free copy of Roxanne's book. Just go to thriveinthefuture.com slash contest. And this is to drive engagement. So Thrive in the Future has is over one year old. We've made over 69 episodes, bang, unique content each week. So like us and follow us on your favorite podcast app. And then go to thriveinthefuture.com slash contest and enter your email there to be entered into the drawing for a copy of Roxanne's book. As an alternate, we also are giving away a Amazon gift card. So go check that out. And leave us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. That helps drive the algorithm and pushes Thrive in the Future up in the search results. Thank you. Next time on Thrive in the Future podcast. In the upcoming weeks for Thrive in the Future podcast, these are the topics we're going to be talking about. Are you a trader or are you a gambler? And also my friend Dave and I break out our med kits and first aid kits and compare and lessons learned from that. That's coming up on Thrive in the Future podcast in the next few weeks.